Welcome back to Floating Points, Mimir's podcast about computer science education in higher ed. Last time, we got into the topic of plagiarism and some of the messy implications that it has for classroom grading. This time, the topic will only get messier as we dive into the idea of ethical computer science. It's very topical right now, on the heels of scandalous activity at Facebook and GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, and how companies and technology will comply with it. But this topic will continue to be relevant month after month until we find a way to integrate ethical, reflective thought into the patterns of every technologist. So yet another thing that the great computer science educators and students out there are now responsible for. We'll talk to real people and organizations working on the ground with students to make this part of the learning experience for a young technologist and learn about the ways that they're making it relevant and even fun. There's a tremendous wealth of examples of how ethical CS can be integrated into the curriculum. For inspiration, check out the list of universities with these kinds of courses produced by Casey Fiesler, a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. Her team also published an award-winning paper at this year's Special Interest Group in Computer Science Education Conference, also known as SIGCSE. The paper, Ethics Education in Context, makes several important discussion points about how ethical CS can happen in the classroom. One of the biggest arguments is that ethical CS needs to be continuous, not just confined to one course that students may view as separate from their core technical curriculum, but something that is available in the context of education in different classes. And also, that as educators, we need to be able to have a view of how students view perspectival CS, being able to identify the implications of their work, and then turn that into a technical choice that allows them to not just think ethically, but act ethically. For a specific example, let's take a look at Bucknell University, where Professor Evan Peck has created a series of ethical CS activities that plug directly into topics that CS1 instructors already have to teach. Ethical CS has become such a big topic both in the world and now in the classroom. We're really excited to welcome Professor Evan Peck from Bucknell University, who has taken the initiative to create a series of activities that can fit right in with CS1 topics that teachers already have to instruct their students on and bring the conversation about ethical CS into the classroom. Welcome, Evan. Yeah, thank you for having me. Can you tell me more about when you decided to make ethical CS a priority in your teaching and why? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's just sort of this moment, I think a couple of years ago, where I think I've increasingly had this feeling that what we're doing just simply isn't working. Um, I mean, this is going to come to no surprise for anyone listening. But I mean, as we see you know, technology really kind of being woven into the fabric of everything around us, whether that's education or politics, you know, the workforce, how we interact with each other. Um, what we're realizing is our computer science graduates aren't just building cool, nifty apps anymore. They're, they're really impacting the way we live. Um, and so the question is, are they equipped to make good decisions in those contexts? And I think that 
you know, as we've continued to see kind of the news increasingly suggest maybe not, um, that we continue to build technology with unintended consequences. And so I think it's less of a, a factor of being like morally bankrupt and more accidentally and unintentionally um, not understanding the context and the impact of the things that we build. Um, and so for me as an educator, you know, as a professor who teaches these students, I think it's really hard to avoid a conclusion that we're somewhat responsible. That I think education at, at some level has, has somewhat failed here, um, that we continue to build computers, um, churn out computer scientists who maybe aren't making the best decisions. And so I then it sort of shifted to, well, what are we doing now? We have to do something different. Um, so, you know, how can we start building these kind of ethical thinking, these ethical decisions more tightly into our existing curriculum? How can we make it more of a habit instead of something that students can kind of put off to the side and learn about in a separate course? Uh, so that kind of is what drove me starting to create these kind of, I guess, ethical uh, thinking modules. Tell us about the activities, the modules. Yeah, sure. So I have a couple I've, uh, I've been working, I've been piloting for the past couple years. Um, one of them is loosely based on, it's called the uh, Moral Machine. You can Google this. This is a really kind of nice interactive um, uh, um, website uh, that came out of MIT, where it's, it's kind of like the famous philosophical trolley problem, where basically you have two groups of people. Uh, so the, the kind of like famous traditional problem is a train is coming on the tracks. And it's going to choose one of two tracks. And you have one group of people on one track, another group of people on another track. And you have to decide who the train is going to save and who the train is going to kill. Now, what, what the Moral Machine did is it shifted that into um, a context with autonomous cars. Or what if autonomous cars were put in the exact same situation in which, the, which your, your algorithm has to actually decide, do I kill the people in the car or do I kill people in the crosswalk? Right? It's a little bit of like a forced situation, but it's kind of taking this to an extreme. You know, what if our algorithms have to make life or death situations? What should they decide? And so basically, I translated this into a CS1 um, assignment uh, generated in Python, in which I really try to force students to write in Python what the who the autonomous car would save and who the autonomous car would decide to, to kill essentially. Um, and it's really just kind of, I tried to graft on to content we are already um, tackling in the class. And essentially, I think it's really important to make students make these decisions. Um, so that was kind of one of the core ones. Another one that we started experimenting with was called ethical hiring. And it's the idea that um, algorithms are essentially going through our resumes and our applications, and they're filtering. Before things get to HR, they kind of help HR decide who to pay attention to. And so we tried to kind of replicate that in a really simple way, have students make decisions about, let's say that we just have your GPA of your last four classes in your course. Who do you pay attention to? Who do you keep? Who's worth a second interview? Who's not? And the key is that your algorithm has to make the decision. And it brings up really interesting questions about what stories are we missing? You know, what are we losing when we're shifting from human decision makers to algorithm decision makers? Um, 
And so I think it, it kind of really forces these issues from day one in these courses, rather than kind of shifting it to later than their curriculum, more kind of like looking back, it kind of builds the habits in as they start learning how to build technology in general. How are your students responding to these activities? Generally very positive. And like I said, I'm still in kind of a piloting phase with a lot of them. So we're trying them out a little bit, seeing what happens. Um, but we have some really, I think there's some really cool outcomes. Um, I have one, one assignment that I actually adopted from Justin Lee Occidental College, um, in which he has this really interesting assignment where the, the rough scenario is, let's pretend that anyone who comes uh, to visit your campus the, the university wants to capture some information about them, right? They want to have them fill out a form, like what's your name, your phone number, uh, maybe your gender, just as much information as possible so they can follow up later on. And so what we have them do is we have them replicate a form with some input validation, right? So if someone enters banana for a phone number, the form should kind of spit back and say, you know, please enter a correct phone number. Um, and so this real, even this very simple exercise in which they're basically practicing if-else statements, basically what happens is students for the phone number, most of my students build an input validation for U.S. phone numbers. And so we have these really interesting moments where I had a student from another country basically kind of raise their hand and say, you know, that's great, but you've excluded literally everyone in my entire country. You know, my phone number no longer fits here. And this is kind of a really cool, I think, outcome because one, this is just something that just, again, these aren't kind of like more, these aren't people who are, students aren't making like morally um, bankrupt decisions, right? It's just things that we didn't think about before. Um, and so I think it, it kind of like provoked these uh, uh, certain kind of like situations in class and these reflective moments to say, oh yeah, maybe I'm not representative of everyone. Maybe the things I build for myself and the way I've grown up in the, the world that I'm used to, maybe that doesn't apply to everyone. Um, and then when I did that moral machine exercise, when I was talking about a second ago, you know, we had a lot of kind of fierce debates about what, what should our algorithm pay attention to? Uh, they, the way they have it set up, at MIT is it has things like it will pay attention to your profession, your gender, your weight, things like that. And so we had discussions about what should should your algorithms even pay attention to those things? Should that matter when it's deciding who should kill or not? And and we have these students who arrive at the basically we, we debated about it for a while. And then a student who basically say, you know, I I don't feel like I can answer this. Like I'm not qualified to answer this question. And and to me that's an awesome. Um, outcome, just that statement. Because what we're seeing, and to me, that's almost the, the correct answer, is I don't feel qualified. Because I think part of the problem we're seeing is with people who are making decisions in big technical companies, you know, computer scientists who are making decisions um, that maybe they aren't qualified. Maybe they don't have the political context, the socioeconomic context, the cultural context of what the implications of their actions actually are. And sometimes the right answer is just, I don't feel qualified to answer this. I need to ask someone else. Um, so I think we're seeing really interesting, um, I think, uh, really interesting outcomes. Um, I'm really excited about the direction it's going. We're still trying to figure out the best way to scaffold it to reinforce these habits. Um, 
but I think it's certainly a step in the right direction. Yeah, it's really, really fantastic activities. Um, and if, if I'm to to plug shamelessly, you can, if you're a teacher on Mimir Classroom, you can actually drop both of the activities that Evan mentioned into your class. Um, but I, 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 since you, you brought up the point about qualification, I want to ask a question that I've heard from a lot of instructors. Um, what do you do, what advice would you have for an instructor who feels that they don't have the formal training in ethics um, or the the practice to facilitate this kind of discussion? Because cer certainly, as you, you've said, this kind of reflection is not happening in all computer science classes today. Yeah, it's certainly, it, it's it's very different than I think the way we typically run our classes. Um, I think most computer science content isn't like this. We weren't trained um, to teach um, in these kind of, I think, contexts in which it's it's really hard to find a right answer. Um, but to me, that's kind of the key, at least at least for me, is I don't pretend to have an answer. Um, when we get back to that, um, who should the automated car save? Who should they kill? I don't pretend to know that there's a right answer, and I, I'm I'm very open with that. My goal, and 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 sometimes I've actually considered and wondered if what I, sh I should call this more reflective CS instead of ethical CS, because I, I don't want to give the illusion that I'm teaching them how to make the best decision, because that aligns so much with your personal values um, and, and, and the values of the group that you're working with. And in fact, that we can see very different decisions that people believe are ethical. Um, so I think you can run into problems if you pretend to know the correct answer. But I think that it's much less intimidating if your goal is to simply get people reflecting on the implications of what they're doing. Um, and, and, and certainly, I think there's a lot of work. And another issue here is, I mean, there, there are a bunch of issues. One is there just aren't many educational modules out there um, or at least not enough of them. There are certainly people working this area, but there aren't enough of them that I think gives instructors the confidence and the scaffolding to overcome some of these issues. And so part of it is that we just need to keep on working on um, new curriculum. Um, I mean, just like if there's no curriculum anywhere on um, a new elective I want to generate, I feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> I've to create it all from scratch. Um, I think the other issue that give, gives people pause is especially in our very like politically polarized climate, I think there's a fear that we are going to really rub students the wrong way. Um, and I think that, I think we have to recognize that to some extent, I think that we have maybe more similar core things we're trying to achieve than we think. I think we wanna make society better, not worse. I think we want to live a good life in which we feel in control of our fate. We want to be safe. We want to protect the people we love and we want to be treated fairly. Um, now, how we go about doing those things, I think, differ differs dramatically between people. But this is partially why I don't tell them that there's necessarily a right answer. And the bar I want to set is that simply having students recognize that the, the decisions they make and the technology they build fundamentally impacts those things, uh, making society better, not worse. Um, you know, uh, 
impacting how we the safety we feel and the way we work the technology we impact impacts those things because to me that's that's the bar that we haven't even hit yet there's kind of two levels to this right how can we build students who are who make the right ethical decisions but before that we have to have them be reflective enough to even identify the problems and to me that seems a lot more tractable no matter what your background is um, and then one final point on this i think that it is going to feel a little bit uncomfortable at first it's a different way of running the classroom but and this is sort of what i come back to a little bit i think i i sort of think about in this moment of time in which we're building technology that impacts so many people's lives in so many different ways and i kind of zoom forward to 50 years from now and i think about you know what if we have our atomic bomb moment in computer science and some people said i know analogies were made recently that cambridge analytical was the atomic bomb moment for computer science i i i that certainly was a, a, a difficult moment, but things can certainly get much, much worse. And so as we start looking at the ways technology dictate our lives, I think there is going to be a moment in the future where we really have to reflect and think about what role did we play in generating people who can build, be more reflective and impact society in a more positive way. So it is uncomfortable, but in some sense, I almost think it's like a moral imperative for us. It's something we have to do. Mm. So there are ways we can minimize the discomfort, but in, to some extent, we just have to figure out a way to approach these topics, whether ourselves or bringing other people into the classroom, you know, um, drawing on our good friends and humanities and social sciences, people mm. who are better qualified to talk about the uh, sociological, um, the societal, um, the the, um, the the political the historical contexts in which situate or which technology is being embedded. That's a long answer, but <laughs> yeah, I, no, I ph we'll phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal. And uh, my understanding also is that uh, you had one of your students help you design some of these ethical CS modules. Can you share more about what that was like? Yeah, so I had a really fantastic student who had just taken intro to CS with me, uh, Gabby Laborit. Um, and I hired her over the summer, um, partially to help me with some other kind of curriculum development as designed for human computer interaction course, but also to help me with some ethical CS um, content. Um, and and, and I, honestly, I don't think this is limited to, to ethical CS problems. I think that so I'm in the field of human-computer interaction. One thing we talk about a lot in designing technology for people is um, participatory design processes, which basically means designing your technology alongside the people who are going to use it. Um, and I think that sometimes we get in, in bad habits as professors and educators, sometimes almost thinking that we're sort of the oracle here. Um, and it's our responsibility entirely to figure out how to speak to students. When if we include students in that process and the development, they have really wonderful insights. I mean, Gabby was really wonderful in kind of telling me, you know, what parts resonated with her, what parts didn't, um, you know, trying to programming it, telling me where she was having problems, um, having really interesting ideas about other questions we can ask and ways we could kind of provoke um, students to think about um, the context of these kind of ethical problems. Um, so this certainly isn't limited to that assignment. I mean, I would encourage um, anyone out there to really include students, if possible, in the design of these. I mean, they understand their own context probably better than we do. <laughs> they, and, and they're going to give us some insights 
um, in how to design it best for them. Absolutely. And and so now I'm I'm curious, Evan, to hear how would you describe your ideal ethical CS graduate? Hmm. I think for me, and like before, I think I've been really focusing on can I build reflective enough students? So for me, it comes down to almost two pieces. Do they know what questions to ask? You know, what is my impact on society, on people who is potentially being um, amplified by my technology, who's being left out? You know, what societal um, and systemic um, things that already exist in society is my technology amplifying? Um, So knows kind of which questions to ask. And maybe even more importantly, knows when they don't have the answer. I think this is another piece that's really important. The goal of ethical CS isn't to generate, at least for me, it's not to generate students who have the right answer. It's to generate students who know when they don't have an answer and know when to go talk to other people. Mm. I mean, just just very flatly, we cannot replicate. We're, we're computer science. We're computer scientists. And even if we build in these modules and all of our courses and have students constantly working on them, our students are still developing, all, uh, spending most of their time on technical content, uh, concepts. We have entire fields of research, entire academic disciplines who are fundamentally focused on understanding, you know, the, the, our cultural context, our societal context, historical, political context, economic context, right? And, and, and leaving those voices out of this conversation is just crazy. And, to, and, and so it, it's almost dangerous, I think, to teach our students to think that they can come up with the right answer by themselves. They have to know when they are not equipped to get those answers and know who to talk to to understand the context of, uh, of what they're and the impact of their technology. Absolutely. So Evan, the last the last piece I have here is later in the in this podcast we're going to talk to someone from Major League Hacking. Um, they're an organization that supports students learning about technology extracurricularly, and for the past year they've been working on an ethical tech initiative to pose these reflective questions to students after technology competitions. So I'm actually gonna I'm actually gonna throw one of the questions from MLH's ethical tech quiz at you. And uh, I want to share uh, your response. So have you ever encountered a time in your engineering or design work that you'd consider an ethical moment? More specifically, a time when you paused to consider the consequences of the code you were writing or the product you were creating for the user or society at large? Yeah, so I had, um, I think, a really interesting situation early in my time at Bucknell is one of our research projects. Um, so this is this is at a moment when um, the app Yik Yak was really big on campuses. And so for those of you who aren't familiar with Yik Yak, Yik Yak um, basically allows you to, to, to create like these anonymous messages that people can upvote or downvote. And then like basically only people like pretty local to you can see them. So mostly like people at Bucknell can see messages by people at Bucknell and you can upvote ones. And if you downvote them enough, they disappear. Um, anyways, this, this became like a very like controversial app everywhere, right? I mean, with all anonymous apps, you get all the messiness that comes along with it. So I had this student who actually scraped data from um, Yik Yak 
uh, like every couple minutes for a couple months. And so we had this really rich data set um, of not only like what sorts of things were happening locally, but also, um, you know, how they were upvoted, how the community kind of responded to them, which ones were downvoted and basically into oblivion. And we were working on this really cool application, uh, which we were, we were trying to, we were showing people messages and then having them predict whether the community kind of endorsed them with upvotes or downvoted them and deleted them. Um, and I was really excited about it because I thought that what we found out is that actually maybe even Yikyak with all of its messiness, that maybe that the way the community actually upvoted and downvoted things reflected a little bit more of kind of the values that we hold as a community than we initially thought. There is still messiness for sure. Um, but what you found out is that most of the horrible messages were downvoted and deleted almost immediately. Um, and so we built this really cool application. We were really excited to run a research study on it. Um, and then, well, a couple things happened. One is one the realization that scraping that data was against the terms of service of Yik Yak. Mm. <laughs> Um, and, and this is actually a topic that um, um, Casey uh, Fiesler at, um, at uh, CU Boulder has been talking about a lot, um, sort of research ethics. And these terms of service, you know, whether it's still valid in a research context to ask kind of like societal questions, if you can get around these, can you, can, can you get around them or not? This is actually, there's a lot of legal action happening sort of on this topic by itself. And so that stalled us for a little bit. Um, and, and, and we're still considering moving forward to the research project, but I'll, I'll tell you what kind of was the ethical mo moment for, for us. Yeah. It was, it was really, I don't remember who prompted this reflection. It was realizing that when people were using Yik Yak, they were using it under the assumption that their messages would essentially fall off Yik Yak at some point, no longer be seen, um, that it wasn't permanent. And maybe they realized that people were collecting that Yik Yak was storing their data. But I think that when they are using the app, you, you, you come to it and the design of the app makes you feel like these messages don't live forever. <laughs> they won't be kind of public in a more broader sphere. And so what we kind of came, the, real, the reason we ended up shutting this entire thing down was we felt like we were sort of violating the assumptions of the people who were using that app. Mm. Uh, and that was, that was a really kind of a, a tough decision because we felt like we could actually do, um, do some good with our research project. Um, but we sort of felt like that maybe that we were violating... Um, a certain level of privacy that people thought they had, even if they didn't actually have it, if that data was being stored anyways, but, but that they probably thought they had given the design of the app. Um, so we ended up shutting that down, but that was definitely one we, man, we talked about that for a long time because we were really excited about what we built. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, I guess the, the path to GDPR is paved with with good intentions. Um, that's I mean, that's a really interesting example, and and I think that's a that's a that's a powerful message for students who are excited about creating things with technology to hear. 
Um, and, you know, as anyone can see from uh, Evan's work, uh, it's, it's not like that project was the end of the world. Certainly you and, and your team have spun off a lot of really awesome and impactful work since then. Um, so really cool to hear you take that ethical moment and um, use it to, to guide and make sure your work is responsible. Yeah, thank you. Professors like Evan Peck and Casey Fiesler are doing awesome work in the classroom for their students and for students at other universities to make the conversation around ethical CS a meaningful and practical one. But sometimes, as instructors, we think about preparing our students for ethical challenges that they will run into after they graduate. What if I told you that students are hitting those ethical challenges right now? Major League Hacking is an organization that works with more than 65,000 students around the world, undergrads and master's students alike. They meet on weekends to attend hackathons, creative marathons where students work in teams for 36 to 48 hours to build some new technology and learn more about how they can use computer science and technology to create new things. Those students create the kind of projects that Evan mentioned. And they run into challenges about what would happen if this was to be deployed with real users and real stakes and real concerns about ethics, privacy, and data security. Next week, we'll continue the conversation about ethical CS by talking to the MLH team about their ethical tech initiative, a way to help these students not only experience the joy of creating with technology, but also reflect on the role that ethical CS plays in their creation. I think you'll like hearing about this especially how that perspective can give your students a rich experience outside of the classroom. 